Well, good morning. Uh, I'd like to invite you to take out your Bible and turn it back to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, as we continue our study of particular passages in this letter. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is our text this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and this is what we read there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage has been called the centerpiece of the book of Philippians, one of the great texts of the Bible, focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. F.B. Meyer, speaking of these verses, he says this, in the whole range of Scripture, this paragraph stands in almost unapproachable and unexampled majesty. There is no such passage where the extremes of our Savior's majesty and humility are brought into such abrupt connection. He shows us the great steps by which Jesus approached always nearer and nearer to human sin and need, that having embraced us in our lowest state, he might carry us back with himself to the very bosom of God, and that by identifying himself with our sin and sorrow, he might ultimately identify us with the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. That's what this text is about. It's a good summary statement. Christ's humiliation and condescension so that he might bring a people with himself to experience his own glory. And Paul writes this paragraph in the midst of a strong call to church unity. This isn't egos aside, no self-centered conceit, no I always need to be heard or my way or the highway self-centeredness but a unity based upon this gospel. You know, the gospel that we have is never purely intellectual. It's never just to stimulate our minds, but we know we have really appropriated the person and the work of Jesus Christ when we, when we humbly strive for this kind of unity. And so before we look at these verses in detail, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time of worship. I thank you for this church. Thank you for this church, Father, and, and we ask of you, O oh God, that, that by your Spirit, we might have eyes to see the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, that our minds and our hearts might feel the weight of, of his humility, we might understand the infinite step down that he took to save us, that we also might understand his exaltation, and how even that is an act of amazing grace like we've sung Help us to be horrified by our own pride that it took the death of your son to wash away our sin. 
And would you bring this church family closer together in unity, side by side, knit them together in humility for the glory of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to simply look at these phrases one by one, describing the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then we're going to close with a little bit of application. And so put your eyes on verse 6. Christ Jesus is described here as, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, when Brayden, our oldest son, was a little bit younger, so a few years ago, saw a photo of Laura and I, our wedding picture, and our family together. And he asked the question, where am I, Daddy? How come I'm not in the picture? Almost in kind of an accusatory way. Innocent, however, but to insinuate, what did you ever do without me? He said, son, there's a whole world of living with your mommy and daddy before you were ever born. Before the thought of you was ever in our minds, we had a relationship with each other that was not dependent upon your arrival. (laughs) We couldn't quite grasp the idea that everything was already in existence long before he came onto the scene, that his birth did not signify the beginning of time, and that there was a love between Laura and I that did not include himself. You know, children can can be self-centered in that way, and, and so are we. And sometimes we think of our Savior, we think of Jesus Christ, we only think of him in relation to people. You can subtly insinuate, what did you ever do without us, God? You think of his glory, his, his power, uh, miracles, multiplication of food, calming the raging sea, casting out demons, healing the unhealable, all in relation to people. We can think of his heart. Children aren't scared to run into Jesus' arms. He could have healed lepers with his word, but he decided to touch them instead because they haven't felt human touch for years. Spent time with notorious sinners, people being categorized as out of God's reach, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, religious and irreligious. There's so much of who he is that we think about during his 30-plus years on earth in relation to humanity. Even in our own personal lives, what's God doing for me? My marriage, my singleness, my career, where am I going to live? We begin to shrink God down to only how he impacts me. Brothers and sisters, there was a whole world of living long before humanity and before us, and Jesus, the Son of God, for all of eternity past, prior to us, prior to creation, there was a whole world of living where he was enjoying a love with the Father and the Spirit in a sense that did not include us at all. Very good without us. Jesus says in John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. John opens his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There's an interaction there between the Son and the Father, face to face, exploring and enjoying each other in the expression of the fullness of his glory. You think about your best times with another human being, enjoying each other. You don't want those times to end. i got to spend time with your pastors and elders and and their wives late into the night. Didn't want to go to bed. Husbands and wives, when there's not drama, 
You gaze into each other's eyes with love. How, how do you describe that? Those kinds of things aren't even scratching the surface of a sinless love between two holy and perfect and infinite beings as one. And long before anything was in existence but God himself, God was satisfied within God himself in utter enjoyment of love and fellowship within the Godhead without mankind. Jesus longed for that. He knew about that. He prays in John 17, 5, right before he's about to be arrested and then be led to the cross. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory I had with you, Father, before all of this, Jesus longed for that. And so when Paul writes here, though he was in the form of God, that word form is not about an external appearance form, but the form which expresses the being that underlines it, expressing the nature, the essence of this God within the sphere of God, what he is within himself. Jesus was in the form of God. This is looking back to Jesus' pre-incarnate existence within the glory of God himself. He owned every right to stay within that mode of enjoyable existence, but he did not, the text says. Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or grabbed or seized at or clutched too tightly as much as he enjoyed that inner Trinitarian relationship in that way. The Bible says here that the Son of God was willing to give up that particular mode of enjoyment, that his very godness would not be used only to get something for himself, but his very godness used instead to give something. And so Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's phrase, verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God the Son emptied himself or made himself nothing. That's the main clause here. This doesn't mean that he emptied himself of being God because the text doesn't say that he emptied himself of being God. That's the point where heresy begins by reading things into the text which are not in the text. And making himself nothing does not mean that he ceased to exist, made himself nothing. The text says Christ emptied himself or made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, by being born into the likeness of men. The phrases after the main clause, made himself nothing, explain to us how he made himself nothing. Sinclair Ferguson, Lord of glory though he was, he emptied himself not by subtraction of his divine attributes, but by the assumption of human nature. He was Emmanuel, God truly with us, fully God, and yet truly man. And so Christ empties himself. He becomes nothing, not by subtraction, but by addition. Jesus Christ assumes the form of a servant. Same word as form of God. But here, not the essence within God, but the essence of a slave. Born in a manger as a real person, a real human being, all of that without losing his godness. This is not a servant instead of God. This is God the servant. This is God the slave. 
And God becomes a human being so that he might become a slave. Now that sounds almost blasphemous. That the identity the Lord of all assumes, the essence, is one of slavery. It almost sounds like blasphemy because the condescension from the creator God, the self-sufficient Lord, fully satisfied within himself to be born as a creature. The creator is a creature and not a creature in a mansion but a creature who functions as a slave without any rights for himself, it sounds like blasphemy because a slave is the lowest class of dignity among all of humanity. Now I want to say this. Our highest thoughts when we think of God, they're not high enough. You could spend all day contemplating the glory of God. You could read the best theologians and their life's work. We aren't even scratching the surface. You can climb to the highest peak of the highest mountain to get the greatest view, to see the largeness and the beauty of creation from that vantage point and stand in awe at something that the Lord created in a moment with the sound of his voice. Our highest thoughts don't even reach to the very first step on the stairway to heaven. John Piper, he asks the question, why does eternity exist? He answers, it exists because it will take that long for us to know the inexhaustible glories of God. You know, heaven doesn't get mundane over the centuries because we get used to it. It's a fountain that never runs out. Jonathan Edwards talks about this. Your understanding of God can go as far as you want it to go. It's a flight into an endless expanse. It's a dive into a bottomless ocean. You can discover more and more of the beauty and the loveliness of God, but you never exhaust God himself. Our highest thoughts are not high enough. This is what Jesus was enjoying for all of eternity past, face to face with the Father. And our lowest thoughts are not low enough either. None of us in this room are slaves. I'm sure some of you guys have been through some stuff. Your lowest lows are not lower than Christ's lows. You know, lowness, in fact, is it's a relative term by definition. It's measured to the height from which one descends. If I wash feet, that's humility. If the Lord washes feet, it's much more of a condescension. The step down is measured relative to the height from which one descends. To further thought, if I wash my wife's feet as a slave, that's humility. Not as much as if I wash LeBron's feet. Jesus washes Peter's feet, and then he washes Judas's feet, full well knowing what is to come. The measure of the step down of Christ is relative to who he is, to what he becomes, and to whom he serves. Who is it that makes himself nothing? The self-sufficient God Almighty. What is it that he becomes? A slave. And who is it that this slave then serves? Not angels, but the lowest of lows, utterly sinful humanity who rebelled against him. Jesus Christ did not have to do any of this at all. But he did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, for his own gaining in the incarnation. His godness is not a means for getting something. It's a means for giving something. And the self-sacrificial giving of himself until he was utterly empty. Jesus Christ gives himself as a nobody, rightless slave who serves us, but even more as if there could be more. Verse 8, the text continues. And being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. That's the main clause here. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. Verse 8, he humbled himself. He's found in human form the likeness of men. Jesus Christ did not just wear a human costume. The incarnation is very real. He had to nurse. He had to be carried as a baby. The Son of God cried for milk. Think about that as you hear babies. He was dependent upon the sustenance his mother provided. His voice cracked during puberty. He was awkward. He studied under his father. He got splinters doing carpentry. He felt hunger, thirst, fatigue. We get tired of our retreat. It's hard to sleep in a new bed. You feel weak. You feel fatigued. That's what Jesus Christ felt throughout his life. He had to learn how to navigate through social settings. He had to deal with very difficult people, mean people. He knows family drama. You think you got family drama? His family thought he was crazy. All the pains of this life, all the relational stress, dealing with singleness in a time where everyone gets married, the physical toil of living upon the sinful world. He knows what it's like to be broke, to be betrayed by close friends, to have those kinds of relationships, except he's truly been on the innocent side and contributed nothing to the conflict. Jesus did not just know these things in theory. The incarnation is very real. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be like us in every possible way so that he could deal with our sin. Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. Do you understand how powerful that last phrase is, yet without sin? Think about the temptations you have to sin. Maybe lust. How powerful that can be. Anger. That moment. Something's whispering to you. Just let it out. It's going to feel good. Release your wrath. Worry when we distrust God's providence. Question his character as a loving father. Revenge, revenge by gossip. Call it venting instead of calling it hate. Covetousness, I'm just going to daydream about all the stuff that I don't want, that I, that I want but I don't have. I'm just going to look up some stuff online to feed that because that's what's going to satisfy my human soul, not you, God. In every respect, Jesus has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. Our temptation is at its very strongest point the moment before we cave into sin. The moment before we break and give in to sin. That temptation, when it reaches that peak, it's painful. Resistance is hard. It's a form of suffering. Jesus never broke. He never caved. The power of the temptation he felt was stronger than anything we've ever felt, and yet he didn't sin. There's pain in those kinds of attacks. Sometimes we can forget that the Lord lived 30 years before he began public ministry. Try not sinning as a child. I had three little boys. They sin almost every second of their life. 
His suffering did not begin at the cross, resisting it tooth and nail all of his life as a teenager, as a human being, relative to the heights from which he stepped down, the battle against sin, his entire life of suffering. Man of sorrows, we just sung. Every time someone said, Jesus, Jesus, his name reminded him, I'm going to remain sinless to die on a cross to save sinners who have fled from me anyway. And I'm going to fight this sin to stay pure. People are supposed to die. The wages of sin is death. God is not supposed to experience death. And God the Son obeys even to the death, something he did not deserve. He dies. Not a peaceful death, but the worst kind of death the first century had come up with. The capital punishment of Rome reserved only for the lowest classes of slaves and violent criminals. If you're a citizen, you can't be crucified. That's too low for you. It's too degrading. In fact, in polite Roman society, you don't even say the word cross or crucifixion. It's like cussing. It's how degrading and bad it was. Shameful, very public, always coupled with other forms of torture. And so it was always bruised, beaten, flogged, bleeding, naked bodies which were hung upon the cross. And it was the design of the Romans to crucify publicly in a prominent place to proclaim, you don't mess with Rome. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. It was a deterrent because everyone would walk by that public place and look at that man hanging and think, I never, ever want to be that man. That's how the Romans viewed crucifixion. The Jewish people viewed it as being cursed by God. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Why do you think Jesus on the cross was such a stumbling block to the Jew. They couldn't get over the fact that the Messiah would be cursed by God. They couldn't believe that. Jesus was not forced there, brothers and sisters, as if anyone could force him to do anything. At any point, 12 legions, 72,000 angels, any moment to end his suffering, he could have done that. He stilled the raging sea with a word. You know, in Hawaii, the tides are rising. They're starting to break away the beach. When the swell comes in, it's big. People die in my neighborhood. They get knocked off the rocks. Raging sea, one word. You could see your reflection and power. He had that kind of power, and yet he chooses to suffer so much that he couldn't even physically carry his own cross to Golgotha. He endured mockery. You know what they mocked Jesus for? prophesy, Jesus, tell us who hit you. God is being mocked to prophesy. The taunt at the cross, ironically, was he saved others, but he cannot save himself. The temptation to respond to such taunts. Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth humility. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ went there willingly because he loves his church. Because he loves his church. You think of the things you endure for the people that you love. You got to preach that to yourselves when 
you don't know what's happening in your life. Jesus Christ loves his church so much. When there's drama in your church family, you got to remember that. Jesus Christ loves his church so much. I ought to love my church the same way. And so Christ did not grasp his own godness. He did not own his rights as a second person of the Trinity for self-protection. He did not count equality with God a thing to be seized or kept or held onto tightly or clutched. He emptied himself to die in this way. God the slave dies upon the cross for his people. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ willingly and humbly condescends to the lowest of lows. And here the Father exalts him to the highest of heights. God the Son humbles himself. God the Father exalts the Son. One acts in stepping down, the other acts in lifting up. Christ does not exalt himself as a man. Someone else does it for him. How dare we ever exalt ourselves? What happens in this verse is exactly the opposite of what happens in the world today. There's a lot of self-exaltation. That's how we're most naturally and sinfully wired. The guy's so handsome, so smart, so funny. She's so driven, ambition, her mind's so sharp, she's so pretty. He's athletic, cheer for him. Good student here, great business mind there, summa cum laude, honors, what college you went to, where you live, what you drive. Set yourself apart from the pack. Even in the church, that person knows so much, so spiritual, mind so theological, totally has their act and life together. I don't think I've ever heard them confess it. Or at least the shameful kind. It's all the prideful advancement of self. That's how we're most naturally wired. What we do, we exalt ourselves. That's not God's design for humanity at all. God does not exalt Jesus Christ because, oh, his intellect, oh, his wit, his wealth, his charm. Look at the sharpness of his mind, his preaching genius, his ability to influence people and draw a crowd. He has such magnificent potential, his good looks, his athleticism, his ambition. No, Jesus, no, God exalts Jesus Christ because of his humility and his condescension even to the point of dying in the worst possible way for the good of people who don't deserve any of it at all. That's what God exalts in humanity. That's the importance of that therefore connection in the middle of this paragraph. That's not just for Jesus, brothers and sisters. Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be your servants. Whoever exalts himself will be humble. You think God lies about that? And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6. These are verses we know. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud. That's all you have to do to get God oppose you. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God's economy is a lot different than ours is. In Christ, humiliation comes before exaltation. The cross before the crown. We bend low before we are lifted up. And maybe for some of us in this room going through a difficult time, remember that. Your lowest points are not your worst times in life. God takes things away or bends your knee, puts your face to the ground. It's not for bad. It's for good. We humble ourselves in servitude, leave the exaltation up to God. You know, Jesus could have exalted himself. The question wasn't ability. It wasn't that he couldn't do anything about his abuse. He absolutely could have, but he wouldn't. It's a lot different from us. Sometimes we act humbly because we can't do anything about the situation we're in. We don't have power. And that may be the only time we're actually humble. But if we can do something, that's when we flex. That's when we show people what we're made of. We can often only act in humility when we don't have the power to do anything about our situation. Jesus could have sent his murderers to hell immediately. It would have been easy. Jesus Christ is the one causing their hearts to beat. He's sustaining every breath in their lungs. He sustains the entire universe, Hebrews 1, 3. He just had to pause for a second or two. They didn't realize how dependent they were upon him for life. The world's response to Jesus' life, humility, crucifixion, humiliation, degradation, betrayal, Jesus' response to the world is dying for the world in love. The Father sees all of that. He sees everything, brothers and sisters. The Father sees all of that, and his response to Jesus' life is altogether different than the world's. That's always the case, brothers and sisters, that there's a stark contrast between what God exalts and what the world exalts, and what God views as ultimately praiseworthy, and what the unbelieving population views as praiseworthy. And our own spiritual maturity is most practically measured by what side of the line we fall upon. What side of that line do you fall upon? Jesus Christ, boom, 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 lower, 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 several steps down. The Father in one swoop resurrects, ascends, declares Jesus to be the Son of God with power, Romans 1, 4, sits him at his right hand, 1 Peter 3, 22. Angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him, and in doing so, there is the ultimate vindication and affirmation of the incarnate life of Jesus Christ, and he gives to him the name that is above every name. The name. What does that even mean, the name that is above every name? This is a name like Braden, Dane, Trent are named so we could figure out which boy's which. Now the name here carries much more significance than mere identification. The Hebrew people, they knew this. The name for God, Yahweh, many considered it so sacred that they wouldn't say it out loud. In many of our Bibles, the distinction is seen in the word L-O-R-D with all caps. 
not because of the way it sounded, not for identification, but because of who it represented. And they would read in their Old Testament, they come to the Lord's name, Yahweh, they, they wouldn't say it out loud. They, they might say Adonai instead. They feel worthy of saying that name. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name, my glory I give to no other. And in this text before us, God gives his name and essentially ascribes his glory to Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be thinking, what's the big deal? Jesus Christ is God. Of course he gets his glory. The Trinity, he's in the form of God. We just read that, John 17, 5. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Isn't Jesus Christ just getting what he originally had in the first place? And he is, in a sense. And he didn't essentially lose it. But here's the distinction, I think. The glory that Jesus Christ had from before the foundation of the world, the glory that he shared with the Father as God himself, what is rightfully his as God. Jesus is incapable of being elevated any more than he already is. He cannot have more glory than he previously had as a second person in the Trinity. He can't be lifted to a higher place. But the God-man... God as a man can. The incarnation is very real, brothers and sisters. There's this utter reality to this humanity. And Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, God elevates. And in doing so, he lists humanity and Godness together to bear his own name, L-O-R-D and sharing his own glory that he never shares with another, God and man together within the Godhead. Creator and creature enjoying what is only the Lord's. The quote I read at the top of the sermon, Jesus approached always nearer and nearer to human sin and need, that having embraced us in our lowest state, he might carry us back with himself, to the very bosom of God, and that by identifying himself with our sin and sorrow, he might ultimately identify us with the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. Jesus Christ was never at any point not God. But at this point in his incarnation and in his deep servitude to us, he carries us back and brings man and God together in a way that was never thought possible to share and enjoy in his exclusive glory without being consumed. And salvation, brothers and sisters, is not merely an escape from hell. If salvation is only freedom from punishment and wrath, we don't understand it at all. Salvation is ultimately being one with our God and enjoying what the Son has enjoyed face to face with His Father in the Spirit for all of eternity to come. There's a song we sing at our church, uh, Here is Love. The lyrics, we are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit now with man are intertwined. You know, Eric Alexander about this text, he says, only God could have written this text. 
Only God could have done this. Let's look at the text again. What is the purpose and the result of God's reaction to Christ's humility? Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's exaltation of Jesus Christ is for the sake of his universal lordship. God's lifting up of the Son is for the purpose of his universal lordship. Every knee, every tongue, this is comprehensive. Angels, humanity, even the satanic realm, all of creation, living and dead, the whole intelligent universe, at the name which belongs to Jesus here, the God-man, all will bow down and confess in acknowledgement exactly who he is. Language comes from Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out, in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come, and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In this text, every knee, every tongue, even his enemies, even the ones who were incensed against him, all will recognize God. I am God, there's no other. Here in Philippians, Paul uses that wording and applies it to Jesus Christ. That distinguishes Christianity from everything else. We confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Salvation is only in his name. You know, any teaching like the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, which denies or diminishes the godness of Jesus Christ, goes against the word of God. Goes against God himself. They call themselves Christians, but it's not even close. Christians are the ones who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. The bending of the knee, this is great reverence, submission. It's marking the humility of one who can't stand upright before God. The tongue confesses. This is open acknowledgement. Not all will do this joyfully. Not everyone will do this gladly. But everyone will do it. Even those who rage against the Son of God will be put to shame. The devil and his fallen angels, rebellious as they are, one day they will openly declare that Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of God. And on that final day, everyone will see him and recognize him for who he is. The application of the text, turn to Jesus Christ and be saved all the ends of the earth. We must not mistake the incarnation and the humility and the essence of God being a slave. We must not mistake that for weakness. People cannot be one with Christ's humiliation if they cannot be won by the beauty of his love, then they must be warned. If the father exalts his son to the highest place, he will find any lesser honor given to Jesus as utterly intolerable. And for any of us to demean who God himself has already exalted is not a light thing. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 7 tells us that when the Lord Jesus is revealed, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Every one will bow eventually. Every tongue will confess one day. I think that even in hell, there will be bent knees and openly confessing tongues, even in torment, and the cry of the damned will be, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Eventually, all will submit. Why doesn't God do that now? Don't overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Paul Washer says this, with one hand, God is motioning man to come to him. With the other, he is holding back his wrath. Soon he's going to drop both hands. Don't delay if you're waffling in unbelief. And Christians, that Peter text is really written to spur the church towards holiness and godliness and urgency and perspective. The return of the Lord should make us all the more streamlined in our goal in this life. And when Jesus Christ is ultimately recognized for who he is, God the Father will get all the glory. The Son of God's Lordship is the Father's purpose and also brings to him the greatest praise. And so the paragraph begins with Christ being in the form of God, humbling himself for salvation, and it turns as the Father decisively exalts his Son and humanity with him, showing that Christ's Lordship leads to the glory of God. The glory of God in Jesus Christ, who God is and what he is like. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the exaltation of the Son of God. This text was written to unite the church. It wasn't a five-step plan to be on the same page or to make your mission statement more uniform. But God's plan to unite the church is to simply look at the cross of Jesus Christ and his exaltation into heaven, application. When Augustine was asked to list the central principles of the Christian life, he replied, first, humility, second, humility, third, humility. If the gospel doesn't flatten us to the floor, then we only know it up here. If Jesus Christ is Lord of all, we must dethrone ourselves. The world does not revolve around me, 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 me. 
it all begins and ends with how all of this affects me. John MacArthur says this, it's hard to make much of yourself if you make much of Christ. Who are you going to make much of? You know, I was supposed to write small group questions. I, I didn't write them. I mean, that could be your small group question. Where in your life are you making much of yourself? Because by definition, you can't make much of Christ at the same time. Where in your ambitions are you making much of yourself? Or in your relationships, are you making much of yourself and not making much of Christ? There's a lot of married people here. You can make much of Jesus Christ, even if your spouse is a jerk. Or you can make much of yourself by pointing out how much he's a jerk. Or she's a jerk. Where are you making much of yourself? Where are areas before the Lord that you need to Bow in a joyful humility. Maybe things aren't going the way you planned them to be. You cry out to God, change this for me. Cry out to God. But make sure you, you don't read a text like this and question his wisdom or his love for you. Make sure you don't shake your fist at God in pride. Is there any area of your life that you're not getting what you want? You need to humble yourself before God, knowing that if you looked at things through the lens of his love, these are the things that are the things you need and would want if you knew what he knew. You know, all of creation is designed to make much of Jesus Christ. All of your God-given life, resources, talents, uniqueness, abilities, all of it, you have a choice to make much of yourself or to make much of Jesus Christ. We will all naturally want to make much of ourselves. That's what we're going to do unless we fight not to. What are some ways, small groups, that you can practically fight for that. Jesus Christ did not crown himself and neither should we. He did not elevate himself. How dare should we? He let the Father lift him and crown him and know this, know this. There will never be a believer who in deep humility stoops to serve. There will never be that kind of Christian who goes unnoticed by our God. Even a cup of cold water given to the least brother or sisters of ours is done as if done to Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 25. People may forsake us, call us crazy, think we're idiotic. The Lord will not. The Lord will not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, did not grasp his godness but he added to himself slavery and humility and humanity that he might approach ever nearer to us. Sinful, rebellious us and bring us in union with himself to enjoy what he had enjoyed from eternity past. Father, would you make us understand your glory more and more 
as much as we can handle. Explore all of who you are in Jesus Christ. May we look full into his wonderful face that the things of the world would look strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We pray for Pillar Baptist Church that you would make them as one that in humility they might serve each other and love the church even as much as you love the church that they would never seek to use who they are to divide the church but they, they submit and serve even as a slave Lord we we can't wait to see your son a high and exalted for all of creation to see him as he really is. In the meantime, would you bring many other people to come to know him through this church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.